there we go. Got the music down there. Can't hear myself with that uh, wonderful soundtrack from uh, Mr. Mark Pilkington. Um, I don't have time to read a lot of uh, contemporary literature for various reasons. I used to read a lot more, and I'm just uh, mostly a nonfiction hound and uh, love the classics. Uh, but through sort of r somewhat random uh, circumstances, I found myself holding a uh, Nagelberg, uh, who I had the opportunity to meet uh, a year or so ago. And it's called The Fifth Wall. And it actually intrigued me greatly. Um, it's a very intelligently written, uh, well-crafted uh, book. It's the kind of thing that, uh, you know, liter the literary scene would love. Um, uh, reflective, somewhat anxious, somewhat bleak, uh, often beautiful in concept and in execution. But I was particularly intrigued uh, with it because Rachel, though she lives in Los Angeles now, lived in San Francisco. And there's a lot of uh, sort of greasy thumbprints of uh, San Francisco issues on it, which in many ways are reflected in the kinds of things I like to talk about uh, in the show. There's themes of technology, uh, of the San Francisco underground, of uh, ayahuasca healing circles, and also just a very recognizable zone of a younger generation in the city than, than mine. Um, Rachel's about 30. Uh, and so it was really, for me, quite an eye-opening read of a place that was very familiar, but from a very different, different angle. Uh, the story is about a, uh, an artist uh, who does sort of documentary artwork using uh, video and, and found objects and installations uh, named Sheila Ackerman. And she, we, we start off with this incredibly traumatic event where Sheila witnesses the, um, the suicide of her mother almost spontaneously. She just sort of walks in. Uh, her mom had a tumor. And, and this sort of trauma sets in motion uh, a lot of the searching and the ang anxiety and the despair and, and some of the uh, even some of the exuberant e explorations that the rest of the book uh, follows as we meet, uh, you know, a, a robotic artists and various boyfriends and uh, go on uh, uh, certain adventures uh, that, again, are sort of recognizably uh, Bay Area in a lot of ways. So uh, I was really intrigued by the book. And even though I don't often um, have contemporary authors on the on the show. It's, I usually think about literature as sort of a, a, of a different zone, and this is definitely not the kind of genre book that I usually read. Uh, it has science fictional elements, but it's uh, more sophisticated in, uh, in tone than, uh, than most science fiction, certainly in writing style. Uh, so I thought I'd uh, bring Rachel on the show and talk to her about that, about her own experiences. Um, it's, it's good to get uh, younger voices on the show uh, as well. I know for young people, a 30-year-old baby sounds old, but for me, it's a whole other world, you know, and uh, it fascinates me to see how people are dealing with uh, the issues of transforming technology, of uh, surveillance, of, um, you know, Instagram, cell phones, all that stuff, and how that kind of it makes it difficult in a way to write novels. Uh, I think a lot of novels are sort of struggling to figure out what they are about, what they mean, what can they can do in our contemporary, um, increasingly surreal and uh, desperate environment where the very form of the story seems to be, of the personal story especially, seems extremely difficult to get. I think a lot of us maybe once had a, more of a sense that our lives were unfolding as narratives and now they feel more like 
you know, quick takes with a lot of commercial interruptions and uh, uh, changing of channels. Uh, so that that frustrates some of the traditional functions of uh, of narrative. So it was wonderful to see it worked out in what, to my mind, was a, a very successful uh, novel, especially given that it's a first novel. So anyway, uh, Rachel, uh, thanks for joining us on Expanding Mind. Thanks for having me. I'm so excited to be here. I love the show. Great, great. You know, I, I, we know we were talking about how to how to start off the conversation, and um, you know, one thing, of course, is you know, what what uh, you know what motivated you to write this book? Some boring version of that, and but of course, what's more interesting is to sort of get a sense of how once you started with whatever principles you had, whatever themes you were interested in, uh, how it drifted. Because clearly, uh, for me, reading this book, part of what I enjoyed about it is I could tell that you were working out a lot of things. You were working out your, you know, your own shit. You were working out issues of, of, of being in San Francisco and, and kind of seeing that a little bit in the, in the rearview mirror. Um, and not in a way that it's just overly confessional, but just the sense that the, the stories and the incidents and the, the language was, was really processing a lot of material. So it, it felt like I was with you kind of in the creative process. So I'm kind of curious how from your from your end, how did the, the book drift uh, once you started actually writing it? Yeah, so this book actually began in Pittsburgh, actually like the pre-thinking of the book when I did my undergraduate degree there and took a bunch of writing classes. And I was thinking about like where the first real idea for the book came because originally the book was called The Baby Without a Face, which is a really bizarre title for this book because it has nothing to do with how it came out. But I was really interested in in art and science. Um, my kind of focus was on writing, but I did this kind of minor that I created on contemporary studies with art and philosophy. And um, right at the time when I was doing all this work, the bodies exhibit was happening at the Carnegie Museum of Science. Do you remember that exhibit? I do. I, I saw that in uh, Los Angeles. It was a fascinating experience. Really fascinating. I actually didn't see it because I was too frightened at the time. I was 20 years old and I was like, I don't know if I could handle this. Do you, what, do you want to tell people what it is for those who don't know? So it was this science exhibit that mounted these kind of these bodies that had real human bodies that were deceased um, with questionable sources as to where they came from. But they were mounted in all sorts of positions that revealed, right, like the inner workings of the kind of the system, right? Yeah, and it was they were quite. It was very weird because it was like under the framework of science, you were allowed to go in and and have this kind of uh, encounter with your own flesh, and uh, it was really amazing experience. Not so much for the image for the bodies themselves, which you know were impressive, and there were some. You know, it was, but it was also, like you say, kind of questionable. It was kind of like exploitation under the sign of science. But yeah. watching people, other people react to it was was incredible. But you, but it freaked you out too much to go. It did, and and I was also really interested in the idea of how it was presented as an art exhibition as well. And I was kind of exploring these ideas of what what are the boundaries today between art and science and art and technology and um, Kind of to get back to the idea of what inspired the book, when I was younger, I remember distinctly, like, because I started using the internet when I was very young, and, you know, I had a screen name, you know, in my early teens, so 
I remember walking outside and thinking like, I can't tell the difference between the inside and the outside. And I didn't really know what that meant at the time, but I felt like something like in my perception was distinctly changing. And so I kind of, the whole bodies exhibit kind of brought that idea to me in trying to explore like this body being presented as this representation and art. And, and so, um, and so the book kind of, started at that point but then moving to san francisco it became it changed a lot <laughs> oh my gosh yeah <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah well that that's kind of what i like about the 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 book is that i can tell that you are a very well educated east coast person uh uh, uh with a, with a name like rachel nagelberg and yet you, you slam into San Francisco and it kind of transforms these issues that you were already developing that were that come from outside. And then they just get mutated and, and uh, uh, as, they, as they kind of meet the, the, the hyper technological hipster uh, uh, sort of drug underground, you know, weirdo culture of, of San Francisco. And so it makes sense that it would uh, that it would change over time. Was that was writing it kind of almost a way for you to like encounter the place like a way of finding your own feet in in a new environment i think it was that and it was really coming to terms with with facing myself as who i was and all of the work that i still needed to do on myself because you know i had all of these intellectual ideas about art about the body about you know the fantasy and reality mixing when i was in pittsburgh and then i moved to san francisco and i realized as these events, traumatic events kind of happened in my own life that I have been sick since I've been a little child. Like, why is the sickness happening? What What is going on in my, the own narrative of my life that is mixing with all these intellectual ideas? And once the intellect begins to fail at healing the body, and it actually becomes almost this, like, this tool that disrupts the body and is actually hurting it like what happens then and so I went on this whole healing journey to figure out how to establish recommunication with my own system and I think that really I had to learn a lot of those things to really open up the book and to bring it these new perspectives well that's that's a really uh, a fascinating point I like I'd like to stay on that for a little bit just in terms of I mean, one of the, I think probably if there was one thing that the book was about, it's about trauma. And trauma to me is it's a very fascinating zone right now in our culture. It's like we're, we're coming to terms with what it means, but also redefining it in ways that are both, uh, that both encourage and open up people's own transformation as they deal with their, with their own personal traumas and, and collective traumas, although we hear a little bit less about that. At the same time, it's also becoming a new way for people to, to create new identities, to understand themselves as being traumatized or as, and there's also kind of a creep in the term as well, like as it moves beyond, you know, hardcore PTSD or long suffering, you know, physical issues like you had where, where it's this recurrent kind of ongoing, confusing uh, problem. It's not like it's just a discrete disease or, or, is, or issue. It's like a larger kind of systemic 
pro- those things, you know, that's trauma. <laughs> but then it's also something that's kind of shifting and moving and, and, and you know, relatively, to my mind, relatively minor emotional problems become reconceived as trauma. So it seems like you're really riding a certain very, very uh, I mean, in your personal life, you were also kind of moving in a direction that the that society as a whole was also kind of uh, wrestling with. And, and I'm, I'm curious to hear when it was, how it was that you came to recognize that your that the existing ways you were trying to treat your issues were not going to work and that your intellect was kind of getting in the way. And then what do you do? How did you start to explore, you know, given the, all the range of alternative therapies and different, you know, healing paradigms and all, you know, the whole, you know, cornucopia of alternative medicine? Uh, how did you kind of find your own way to recognizing it as a physical, emotional uh, process of, of change? Right. That is a loaded question, but I'll do my best to answer. Um, so even before, I mean, before I really knew about the concept of trauma in relation to myself, I called, I kind of called my depression the lack, which ended up in the fifth wall. And um, kind of like this overwhelming feeling that there was something missing in life and that would that would erupt this anxiety attack, like a very existential, um, but also like just consuming my entire perception. And um, I also dealt with, so some autoimmune issues since I was younger. And um, I had, I've had a, a neurological disorder. I've had various things where my body has responded to stress in in ways that were kind of beyond my control and beyond a lot of doctors control and I think when I was stable for a while with western medicine when moving to San Francisco and then um, I kind of got myself into a series of experiences um, particularly with men that I think led me to really I guess question what I was doing and my body started to react in other very bizarre ways. And I think with all of the tools in San Francisco to offer um, alternative care, um, just being part of the community, I was led in the mission district where I worked for many years to a community acupuncture clinic where I had never heard about acupuncture or herbs before, and um, I think it might have been recommended to me by someone at a coffee shop. I honestly, I don't remember that part, but I I recall walking in and saying, I don't know what to do anymore, but I think that, you know, I was told to come here and this feels right and let's try something. And from there, I kind of met one of my healers that I'm still very close with today who who kind of like took me under his wing a little bit and 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 uh, that was my first kind of integration into the alternative care scene. You know, it's it's a real funny thing because I think that I mean, <clears throat> some there's aspects of your story that resonate with with mine. I, I didn't ha- uh, have those sorts of physical issues, but I had pretty you know uh, not continuous but but rather severe depression and with some anxiety thrown in for the for the mix. Uh, since uh, college, and 
um, it was, I remember very clearly like my, my sort of step away from, from that. I never went on, went on meds, but was, was meeting an older, uh, guy who became kind of a, a mentor in a way, um, who had been a, uh, you know, an anarchist in the sixties and then, you know, had gone through the drug scene and then had come into the new age scene and done a lot of physical practices, practices and it real intellectual guy. So there was no sense that like I had to give up my mind when I went into this world because he was a model of how you could be a critical intellectual and someone who was, uh, you know, really devoted to, to spiritual practice and healthy eating and stuff. And I just, I, I was just really lucky. I just learned a lot of things from him just about how to be, or, you know, like how to cook and just treat my body and, you know, to encourage a physical practice. So even if you like say, well, what are the value of any given alternative medicine route, ac acupuncture, you know, Ayurveda, whatever. There's also something that happens that when you're not doing Western medicine, where you kind of, you have to take some responsibility for it as a whole life practice. And it, you know, in my, like, in my case, in so many cases, it really makes it different, but you have to check your brain at the door. <laughs> that was something I had to learn too. Yeah. I, re I recall during that time, because so you know, between the East and West Coast mentalities, I came from this place where it was like, you intellectualize your feelings and you logically think it out. And here in San Francisco, I start to learn terms like feel into your body, feel what's right. And I remember confronting that the first time and being like, what, do, how do I even process that? What does it mean to feel this thought? Like, how does thinking come into this? And um, I took I ended up, because uh, I'm such a researcher, I researched all these modalities and started to, you know, I'm going to do this meditation retreat and I'm going to take this like mindfulness course. And I took this mindfulness and trauma course. And that's where I first came across the idea of like the reptilian brain versus the neocortex and how the in trauma, you're basically unconscious fight or flight response is continuously activated. So learning about that and learning to kind of feel into this inner anxiety was very transformative at first. And I think that's when I started to learn the language of feeling into the body and feeling what my body was trying to tell me is when I started to really form this dialogue around my sickness as being this like, you know, inner messenger. Um, and so that works its way into the fifth wall too, and kind of parallels with this way, this invisible communication that also parallels with technology and our ways to invisibly communicate with. Yeah, absolutely. That's a really great connection. And another one is to art. You know, I just was hanging out last night. Um, I did a, a talk at the the Roxy about uh, hippie religion, and it was super fun. There were tons of people there. Uh, and one of the and I went afterwards. I went out and hung out with John Law, who is a a wonderful uh, character, pro, uh, artist, provocateur, who was one of the a core people who, who who started Burning Man, or you know, took Burning Man to the playa in the early years of Burning Man. And then he left uh, very early on because it was getting too uh, too ridiculous for him. Um, but he's been part of like San Francisco art prankster scene forever since the '70s. And one of the things he said about what made San Francisco unique in terms of its art, in terms of what people were doing or able to do with thinking about survival research labs or the suicide club or burning early burning man or whatever, is that people came it was cheap. So a lot of people could come here, but 
because of the culture of the place, because it was California and because of the hippie thing, it, there was an openness for, for weirdos and inventors and, and crazy people. But there was also a relative lack of intellectual critical uh, people. So it's like in, in, the, in the East Coast and in Europe, if you're in some kind of weird underground avant-garde scene, there's all these intellectuals around who are extremely critical and like hit, hitting everything hard and, you know, bam, 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 bam. And, you know, that's great, too. I mean, it's, you know, Dada comes out of that kind of kind of world. But San Francisco was a little different. There weren't as many of those people. There weren't professionals as much. There weren't as many like hardcore intellectuals in the scene. I mean, there were a lot of smart people, but it was they weren't like critical intellectuals in the same kind of way. And he said, look, that just made it open for just more things to happen. And so it's not just in the alternative healing thing with the kind of encouragement to feel your way rather than think. There's also an element of that in the technology and in the in the in the art scene as uh, as well. Right. It's interesting because on the East Coast I love to read so much philosophy and critical theory about kind of the idea of art and reality mixing and um, contemporary theater and and kind of just, I loved the ideas behind um, the San Francisco art scene. And then when I got there, I felt so much resistance being kind of in the scene and going to these events and feeling like that there was something missing being there because there was no discourse. And like, I found myself questioning a lot, what does it mean to actually be in the show? And like, how does that differ from being outside of it and trying to form conversations around it? Yeah, yeah, that's a that's a big one. I mean, that's been, you know, part of my whole story is also like, uh, you know, it was a really big deal the first time at like, having gone to Burning Man for many years. And then the first year where I chose to give a talk at Burning Man, it's such a, and so it was the first year they started having talks uh, on the playa. And now they have them all the time. Lots of people, you know, throw. But it was this very, for me, very profound moment where I was like bringing in my my interest in discourse and my, you know, whatever intellectual resources and feeding it back to something that up to that point, at least in my life, had been almost pointedly non-discursive. It was just a place where I lose myself. I didn't pay attention. I didn't take notes. I didn't care. I just had fun. And it was a real interesting moment because it, it, it's been something that's brought me both inside and outside of a lot of the things that have gone on here. Because, But I respect that. I respect it. And I'm comfortable around scenes where people aren't interested in discourse. I like it, actually. It kind of rubs against my own uh, tendencies. So, and I could, again, it's, this is all stuff that is, is mobilized in your book. I mean, it's like even talking to you, I'm getting more and more sense of why I like the book because the way that it's weaving these different uh, positions together and being very, um, you know, vulnerable and intense about it too. Not, it's not a cool distant book by any means. Um, but it has that kind of intellectual clarity to it as well. Anyway, you mentioned the technology side of it, and that's a whole uh, you know theme in your book. There's a and uh, the uh, Sheila works at uh, the San Francisco MoMA, the art museum, and there's the show that's being put on by this uh, you know robot artist uh, who's doing this uh, um, the the last art show. Uh, and I, I think and we talked about doing or maybe a reading from the book. So uh, can you read that uh, the description that the artist offers for the for the last art and then the the uh, way in which Sheila responds to this uh, art piece? Sure, yeah, so it's kind of like a comprehensive uh, show called The Last Art, and the artist is just one of the main installations 
in the show. Um, and so kind of towards the beginning of the book, we get a little description of the show Tacked to a Wall, which is the following. Um, the last art presents an interactive venue to experience innovative technology as works of contemporary art. What is the direction that art is moving in? What kind of historical period do we find ourselves in now that we've historicized everything up to the present moment? With the flooding advent of new technologies that allow users to archive life as it's happening, we find that contemporary art is becoming a way of archiving the present. The idea that not only contemporary artists are archivists, but also all who use technology, for we are constantly recording life as it's happening. Everything is happening live. From handheld recording devices and GPS systems to virtual reality interfaces, self-driving cars, biotechnological animal protein growth, and mechanized organs, we have entered into a period where we no longer need bodies to move or eyes to see. Now that the boundaries between art, science, and technology are becoming ever blurred in their attempts to imagine new possibilities for the future, what will the era of the post-human have in store for us and for art? What will the role of art take on? Yeah, so that really sets up some of the the, the kind of big, you know, the, the big think uh, themes that you play out in really interesting ways in the book. Just to throw in one example before we we hear Sheila's response uh, to the to the to the uh, you know the artworks um, later on. There's a, a little a brief bit where a woman wearing Google glass goes into a hipster bar in the, in the hate or the lower hate. And, uh, you know, some guy, some drunk hipster wants to, to take off the glasses and ends up, um, you know, beating her. Uh, and it's this, and then, you know, the clip goes viral and then we have this whole kind of event and, you know, we're becoming incredibly familiar with these things very rapidly, how, how much we've sort of like, okay, that's just part of reality where you get these, what would be in a science fiction novel written 20 years ago, these extremely bizarre, weird, like, could that ever happen kind of <laughs> moments. And, you know, yet we're, we, we experience that kind of thing all the time of, of, and, and also that, that problem of distance of like how, if we're, uh, you know, we're, we're trying to inhabit our lives more fully. And at the same time, all these tools we have almost necessarily places in a kind of distance role or a, a role of archivists where we're kind of, modulating or commenting on our own experience uh and and then how does art intervene with that that whole uh issue is it i mean it's really uh really big questions and sheila has her own kind of response to that stuff as well yeah a little bit later in the book she is talking to an old professor and uh she's kind of pondering this she says i think of all the technology being installed for the last art Screens projecting 3D interfaces of computed data of city structures mirroring coral reef patterns, the inner workings of the internet resembling dark matter and the biological structure of the brain. All of it raw data translated to moving colored lines, shifting like ghosts in a digitalized non-place, the, the display of smart art weaponry, the world's first laser-guided bomb, plus current laser and satellite-guided bombs a GPS bomb, a 3D printed AR-15, 
artificial hearts and lean slabs of beef growing in petri dishes, a film about the world's first artificial organism, a whole room filled with thousands of mounted smartphones displaying viral YouTube videos, Instagram and Facebook posts, text and picture messages. Everything is happening now in a way that feels self-generating, and yet it's all actually outside of us, information circling around us at a rate faster than time producing total disorientation, amnesia, panic. We talk about the world as if we have a clear concept of what it is, its satellite image as familiar to us as a photograph of our friends, but we actually have no fucking clue. Technology has been able to make the earth feel completely known, one big illusion we've all grown accustomed to. Indeed, that's uh, some that's some that's some big <laughs> stuff. I mean, how how do you I mean, after going through, you know, the, the issues in the book, writing about the book and doing, you know, being an artist as well as a writer yourself. How do you think art intervenes in that? Because when I when I read hear that and when I think about shows I've been to that are doing something similar, and I, I mean, I used to go to a lot of new media sh- uh, conferences in the 90s and the early 2000s. So this, you know, this has been going on for a couple decades now. Mm-hmm. And I often have the sense, like, on the one hand, sometimes I get a, a sense of a distinct a really artistic intervention in this problem. But then equally, if not more, I get the sense that the artist is somewhat passively simply recoding a flow that's already coming in from some other world in a way that doesn't necessarily tell us very much. Like you talk there at the beginning about like, oh, look, you can look at the Internet and it looks it's you can map it onto the human brain. There's a lot of like digital art or media art. It's just taking an, an existing information flow and then translating it into another form and then saying that other form is like the art. And it's like, okay, but isn't that what we're doing anyway? I mean, it's it's almost like capitulating to a process rather than making an intervention or a reframing or or some other idea of what art might do. So what do you think? I mean, how does how do you does art intervene in our in this situation which you describe both emotionally and conceptually very well? What what is what is the role of, of the artist to do something other than simply spread the the anxious overflow? Well, I think that it can be a really important role of the artist to reveal these invisible systems at work and present them to us in new ways that actually showcase a truth underlying the surface. And um, there are a lot of really great artists that do that. Actually, one of my favorite video artists, Ryan Tricartan. Have you heard of him? No. He is, oh my gosh, he blows me away. But he makes these elaborate videos that kind of cut and paste this extreme montage sequences of like almost very critically and... um, violently written dialogues about technology, about um, kind of American reality TV with characters that are completely mediated through different um, modes of um, filters and like voiceovers. And it's just kind of like, it feels like you're watching the end of the internet, the end of television, but doing it in such like an extreme way that you're presented with like this new image of seeing it where you're outside of it. Um, and I really think it can be so emotionally impactful, um, to view something like that. 
And, and I really think novels too, I know you're talking about like before what kind of, what is the role of the novel today? And it is to create an emotional connection that allows people to really identify with um, the underlying invisible systems and kind of, and, and reveal it in, in new ways. Yeah, I mean, one of the uh, one of the reasons I found your novel affecting was because of the emotional content. And in a way, you could say that, you know, we're experiencing this science fictional onslaught of information and this all these transformations that that you've mentioned in in the in the quotations that you read. Um, And in a way, that world, the the kind of like game that we're in is that you, you got to feel like you're up for it. Like you're, you're going to make, you know, you can add your own, you can make sense of it. You can make decisions within it. You can show up whether we think about that in terms of being an entrepreneur or how you craft your online persona and how you promote yourself and how you like show up for that world. And some people seem to be able to do it well without too much, uh, uh cost, uh, emotional and otherwise. But I think a lot of us, certainly myself, find it extremely taxing. And then on the downside, you feel disconnected, anxious, amnesic, uh, traumatized in some sense. I mean, I mean, to use the term loosely, we are all, you know, subjects of these transformations that are continually, you know, just even from the, 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 the endless series of upgrades that you have to kind of handle and you're just used to using something. I mean, that even something as trivial as that begins to feel aggressive, even like a certain kind of violence that we're constantly experiencing in order to still be part of the, the social world. But the downside, again, is these feelings of alienation, of depression, of anxiety, of all this kind of thing, but you don't know what to do with them. And and I often feel like it's like I'm, I'm in, very isolated, like, oh, I can't hack it. I'm not, you know showing up and being like the the new the new post-human person who can handle this world but of course millions and millions of people are feeling this way and it's not always easy to figure out how to really connect with those feelings so that at the very least you don't feel alone but also so you begin to understand ways of 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 hacking the situation so i think you're right that the novel has a because of the intimacy that the novel provides in terms of interiority and all of the intellectual material that can go in there as well, it provides a way of, of navigating that that something like film and video or TV can't do at all. Uh, so that makes sense. And there's also this cool idea of like, when you're reading a novel, you are confronted with yourself, but you also lose yourself in a different sense than you would necessarily going to an art show or, you know, watching a. Well, I guess watching a film is a really great way to do that as well, but... Um, you know, the fifth wall, just the title really deals with that idea is that, you know, technology moving beyond the idea of the fourth wall, which is an old theater term, which is the invisible wall between the audience and stage. And now with this realm of technology and with this kind of these profiles and the social media where, you know, even when you're having a conversation with somebody on the computer, you're, you're able to watch yourself. And like, what does it mean to feel like you know to be and to perceive in a world where you are now outside of yourself being viewed by yourself the ego is completely different now and that does produce so much anxiety yeah that's a weird one i I remember you know having conversations with people when you do uh you know certain kinds of uh video calls where you have the little window of of you 
And, you know, and I was like, and I, I don't like to look at myself. Like I don't, I, you know, I'll, I only use a, a mirror at the bare minimum. I'm not particularly interested in collecting photographs of myself. It just, it's not something that really wor is very interesting to me. Um, and, uh, and, and so I would normally think that I wouldn't look at that, you know, like I look at the person that I'm having the video conference with and yet, you know, again and again and again, I realize that I'm looking at myself and it's such a weird alienating, but kind of fascinating phenomenon. Like what is that attraction that's talking to other people? And they're like, oh yeah, everybody does that. <laughs> it's looking at yourself and it's like a strange divide because i mean who would have thought that i mean we've been people have been talking about you know the video phone you know they've been imagining that for you know you know for a century and you know it's actually one of the few like classic old school science fiction futurism uh items that we've actually gotten uh you know we didn't get the flying car and you know whatever there's a lot of stuff we didn't get but we got the video phone and it's funny that like our self intrudes in that process in a way that it doesn't on a phone or in face to face meeting, obviously. Um, and I'm what I wonder about that. What do you think is that what's happening to the self under these situations? You know, I'm still I'm still trying to figure that one out. But so far, it doesn't feel like it's very constructive. <laughs> <laughs> to say the least, you know, I mean, it's it's like this kind of, you know, what does narcissism mean? Like narcissism is a certain kind of, I don't know, it's it's a word. It's been, you know, used a lot in social criticism. You know, I do a lot of work on the 70s and, you know, it's the narcissistic decade where everybody's navel gazing and interested in themselves. And even this language of, of trauma and healing and your healing journey and all that stuff can be seen from that point of view as kind of this deepening of of narcissism is certainly if you look at like, like the kind of contemporary yoga world and how that has been remediated and, you know, all the yoga teachers who Instagram pictures of themselves in front of, you know, exotic uh, mystical uh, buildings and whatever, it just in a way there is this kind of certain increasing intensity of, of attention to the self with the selfie stick, obviously being the sort of obvious technology of it. But to my mind, and narcissism as a concept doesn't quite get at it either because there's, I don't know, it's just, there's something else that's going on with like the self as if, as if it's almost like the last, the last point that is yet, yet to be completely in, interpolated <laughs> to all of these technological systems of flows. And so everybody, not just human beings, but also the, the technology, you know, the machines, the, the internet, everybody's trying to figure out like, what is the self? Is it, is it there? Is it real? Is it just a bunch of, you know, algorithms in our head? Is it, is, does it have a narrative? Does it, does it, does it, can it know itself? It's like the whole thing is trying to figure out what is the self. Right. And there's this kind of like paradox that happens that while we began creating this image of ourselves to project on to something else, now we're kind of identifying ourselves by the image and using that to define us back. And like what happens when we do that? Yeah, yeah, I can I can only imagine that it, it's it's dizzying. And then and how much does do these issues play out in, in at least in, in the novel in terms of the, the kinds of uh, relationships Sheila has. I mean, that's one of the bigger themes is these a series of men, you know, a very, to my mind, of varying qualities, uh, you know, 
uh, some quite callow that she's drawn to nonetheless, some that seem a little more grounded and, and, and sweet, but also doesn't, doesn't really work out. So there's some way in which this problem of the self, uh, I mean, I can't even imagine trying to date in the Tinder world. I can't, I mean, like I'm 50, I can't even begin to wrap my head around it. I think I would be celibate in this, in this yeah. world. I mean, it's just, yeah. I, I, I can't, you know, I, I don't go there. I'm too old for that. But anyway, how much do you think these issues play out in in relationships? And is that part of the reason right. that relationships are so central to the to the to the narrative? Well, luckily, I've, I haven't yet had to try Tinder, but um, I think <laughs> that, um, <laughs> I think that the relationships more deal with the idea of of image in general and. Sheila, Sheila is drawn to these men who immediately project an image onto her that she assumes. So it's almost like this way of her not having to, to really confront herself by having to play these roles and like what happens to her when she goes down the route and she ends up having, you know, does she end up having to face herself after that? Yeah, that uh, that kind of reminds me a little bit of the the other passage we talked about. Um, uh, you know, it's, as you put it, in some ways, kind of a culminating passage uh, of the book, a couple of pages. But I think it really uh, hits on a lot of the the themes we've been talking about. So, so maybe you could read that. Yeah, sure. Let's let's go there. Um, right. So this is a little ways into the book, and Sheila kind of has these. These little insights, poetic insights, and this is one of them. Um, Artists act and make choices. They live and make responses. They absorb the stimuli surrounding them. They don't justify anything. People grow up with a unique set of references, learn belief systems, complex combinations of energies. We form images in our minds about what's right and what's wrong and the possibilities in the gray area in between. Inconsistency with our own processes is important. It allows us to continue to live, to respond. The second we stop responding, we die. In San Francisco, when the wind blows harshly, it forms, forces one to ask why it feels like the earth is punishing. Is it the shifting tectonic forces, the dissolving of the ozone, the culminating grief in lost bodies thrashing through the streets? There are coincidences and there are consequences. The difference depends on the preparation, the acknowledged foresight, the feeling that what is to come might very well be a whole lot worse. Or perhaps it has already been this bad, but it's a horror that's become so familiar that you no longer see it. When then does the trauma begin? And where and when can it end? For years I've been searching the male body as if there is something to find inside of it, some tangible mass, some undiscovered organ, the magic rib from whence Eve became cloned. This is now the bones of my flesh and my flesh. We go through motions, patterns. We make decisions about how to live. To tell the truth, I've always felt as if I've been living in false positions, subsisting without contour. Perhaps that's why I'm drawn to obliteration, a false embodiment, all-consuming, but exceedingly short-lasting, never amounting to anything tangible. But these days I feel a constant inner restlessness, as if I'm a hollowed tree surrounded by nocturnal animals that are foraging discarded objects and storing them inside of me. I feel born of a great absence. The air in my body feels strange. 
There's a constant feeling that something's missing, but what is too vague to really be sure? To spend one's whole life searching for something elusive, something, anything to cling to. Perhaps that's when the body makes its decision to create the tumor, the lax, the tinnitus, all born from an absence, from a deep assembling rage. Caleb says he can feel depression deep inside his DNA, has seen visions of himself in the womb enveloped in dark, writhing energy, has felt the sadness of the cavernous body housing him, and how he fed on that sadness, her sadness, the only world he knew. There are studies about mitochondria and the passing trauma from a mother to her child, how a body forms within a learned nervous system, the gut, the second brain of the human body that for some reason we've devolved in this country to neglect. Isn't the body's main job to store things? Performance artists believe that if you can push the body to its limit without dying, that death is no longer an inevitability, but an eventual consequence. I've never wished for such control, and yet I've created my own ruin. It was an appallingly horrific coincidence. I walked in the doorway and there she was. I never wanted to step foot in that house again. Just knowing it was there made me so anxious I could hardly breathe. If I'm a terrorist, then I should want something. I should want death and destruction to induce fear in others, to brutally fight, to die for what I believe in. But I don't really believe in anything and I don't want to die. I used to think I wanted to, even as a little girl. I watched Peter Pan and I cried. I couldn't control the muscles in my face, my trembling body, to never grow old, to watch the world age around you. For a week, I wet the fucking bed. Pan, which is ironically the root of panic, to be consumed by it all. I have this feeling deep inside me, this rush to get up and lunge at a great distance and purge myself of something that's not physically in my stomach or intestines, but somewhere lurking in my brain. The scariest part of it, knowing that this feeling has been with me all along, this emptiness, this dread, this lack spreading amongst my insides, throughout my veins and arteries, my organic flowing system, all around me and inside of me, like a desert swallowing me whole and each day spitting out a copy of a copy of myself. The fear that this is all that there is and it's all that there will ever be. Your life will never reach a certain point. The point keeps receding like a moving landscape, disappearing into the distance and you're always on the way. All of history feels like it's culminating onto the moving image of her body, her face a pixelation of tiny moving pieces, black hole and white wall, screen and camera, always expanding, repeating, playing forever into madness. We can't turn back and we can never unsee. This is something we have to live with. The camera's still recording. Yeah, indeed. That is, uh, that's quite a, a, a uh, howl, if you will, of our, yeah. of our current uh, plight. I mean, a lot of it really... Um, you know, resonates to, uh, with with me. I thought that that thing about Pan is very interesting. You know, because in some ways, it's you know, we're such a technological environment, so far away from the world, the you know, the sylvan groves uh, associated with the god Pan, and yet the whole connection of the all of the everything and the panic within that everything also seems really, really part of the picture. And and that's something when you think about those emotions that are that are. Uh, stirred up by our contemporary experience, the the feeling of, in my taste, and particularly dread, uh, panic, paranoia, um, 
and uh, kind of exhaustion, this sort of, dis- you know, larger despair, despair not for just the personal self, but for the situation. I mean, these are like profoundly deep, ancient, almost sacred forces. I mean, they're, they're, they're incredibly challenging to deal with, but they're not uh, superficial. Uh, and in some ways, it feels like to maintain our humanity or extend our humanity or whatever we call it, uh, to keep the artistic part of ourselves alive, we have to, you know, accept and even embrace some of that because it's it's the only ballast we have. Otherwise, we're lost in that in that world that that the artist Ryan is kind of depicting. We're just sort of just you know figures, superficial, postmodern, uh, reframed digital blips. And I mean, I mean, this you know it's hard because you have to what what is the what is the, the the dark side you have to try to heal and what is the dark side you have to kind of embrace and work with. Uh, but, but it feels like your your work is getting to that that edge and the kind of necessity of of some of these these feelings, even though they can be, you know, so painful and and, and debilitating. Right. I think my my healing work, where it ended up leading me in between the years, I kind of took a little break between writing the book. Is I kind of realized that I had to really look inward. That I can't keep, you know, moving to a new place or getting a new job or trying trying to kind of focus on the outside. It's really about going and journeying on the inside and seeing what's going on. And that's where my work kind of led me to Peru and to working with ayahuasca and, and actually going deep into the uh, kind of communication with the depression in my DNA and kind of like the brother that Sheila has in this book who is in Peru at the time and he's doing these medicinal journeys, um, kind of realizing that these feelings come from a much more complex and larger place than just myself and what that means and how, how do I, how do I work on balancing the healing, but also creating, keeping the darkness that allows me to transform that into art. Yeah, that's really wonderfully said. It's funny. It reminds me of a of an insight I also had in a in in an ayahuasca session where uh, I I, at the, I simultaneously was able to see kind of the personal roots of some of my depression or some of my my whatever own psychological problems, but simultaneously those issues were linked to you know, the totality of human experience. It's like, okay, you know, to to boil it down too simply, it's like, okay, yeah, I had these issues with my father, but my father had these things with his father and his father had these things with his father. And all that is true. I know that. But then it goes back, it goes back, it goes back, it goes all the way back. And, and you realize that it's just, it's everything. And so it's like you're simultaneously given the tools to work with your specific problems to some degree. And at the same time, recognize that it's part of this much larger collective thing that's just woven into the picture. It's just part of the tapestry. Uh, and and, and I, 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 it's actually something that can be useful, that fuels uh, and doesn't just, um, doesn't just hurt. Uh, you know, Caleb, you mentioned how has, he's the, the character who's down in the jungle, you know, drinking the brew. And we don't hear that, that much from him, but I, I'm kind of curious, like how you wanted to weave in the sort of ayahuasca healing zone into into your story, and, and does it, do you see it as connected to some of these artistic questions or technological questions? Um, you know, how do you do, how, how for you did, did was it important to figure uh, the kind of ayahuasca story into yours? Yeah, I really wanted to 
just kind of put like a little hint in there, maybe towards a hint towards my next works, but I wanted to kind of have a contrast to all of this intellectualization and like kind of present this way of, of this medicine as a deconditioning from the sickness that, you know, media of media and, um, what happens when we do surrender to this mind-body intelligence and um, the insights that Caleb has kind of contrasting with Sheila's insights, I think really creates a really powerful um, emotive uh, sense of the book. And, and also at the time I was really just starting to really touch on these things within myself and it just felt really important. Um, and to kind of bring it back to what you were saying before about this trauma discourse that's going on and kind of pinpointing exactly where you're, what's the reason behind all of your issues and whatnot. And, and really what I've, it's interesting because I, for me, there's not a single event that I can say, this is where my trauma started. This is, and this is where I fix it. It's more like you were saying, this whole encompassing human experience. And when confronting that with ayahuasca, it brought me into that uh, kind of place, this landscape where it, it broke down the boundaries between my body and the earth and allowed me to explore kind of this whole narration of story and origins and I'm still working with these ideas really about what what does healing mean in that sense where it's like there is no you know one antidote for this one issue what what does it mean to heal and I think Caleb's really trying to present this to Sheila from this like you know he does it in the form of text messages so you don't really get any description of where he is and what he's doing besides what he's telling her. Well, I'm, I'm glad to hear that you're going to maybe, you know, continue to work in, in that direction because, uh, you know, again, I think that your, your perspective and your, your history and your, your intellect and your, the way you think about art really allows, uh, um, again, some intelligent discourse to go around something that is too easily kind of, um, I don't know, I don't want to say dumbed down, but sort of uh, brought into a certain kind of, uh, you know, grooviness or, or you know, insider hipster thing or, you know, whatever. It's like I've, I've, I've grown, even as someone who's participated in yoga and meditation and, you know, psychedelics and all this, this very kind of Bay Area world, I've grown weary of, of the uh, self-indulgence and the, the uh, let's say, narcissism of it. And uh, your, so your approach to these things really... Um, you know, I think is important, and you know, I hope you keep working on it in in novels or or art in, in general. We just have a a couple of minutes left, and I just want to ask one more little bit on the science. At the very end of the novel, uh, we get to go to uh, the the uh, the lost theater, and it was a very recognizable kind of 
sort of very creative but also sort of sleazy San Francisco, you know, Burning Man-esque kind of world that's, you know, like it's this kind of world of wonder, but it's sort of vaguely tawdry. And I'm kind of curious, like, have you having gone through some of that scene, too, or, you know, kind of touched it? Uh, how do you feel about that that sort of side of the picture, the more uh, the sort of uh, party, the Dionysian party, the, the, the masks, the, the characters, the whole sort of uh, exuberant play, which is such an intoxicating and fun thing. Um, but also it sometimes seems a little unclear what what it serves. Uh, was that part of I mean, did I was I right to sense some ambivalence there? Oh, yeah, yeah. I think I tried to touch on it a little bit earlier when I was talking about what happens when you're actually part of the show instead of being outside of it. And I think I, I went to a very similar um, event of the Lost Theater in San Francisco. And, and I think um, I was, well, if I hadn't been on numerous substances that made it very, very enjoyable, I think I would have had a very um, similar experience to what I normally have at, at events like that, which is feeling very lost and confronted with my own sense of insecurities um, because there's this really loose and really beautiful but very image-based physical, um, sexual um, kind of way of being and celebrating in San Francisco that I had not encountered until moving there. And so my own issues with being inside of my body are really kind of confronted with like I feel like I'm I'm just uh projecting onto everything so I'm seeing my own insecurities so it's kind of like a way of of bringing that out in the book yeah well that, that I think again it was uh very well done and uh uh and quite quite uh, uh stimulating or you know kind of intriguing uh, at least from my perspective so I think we're gonna going to wrap it up there. So, um, uh, what are you working on now? Are you doing another book or, or what's, what's your, your current creative stuff? Um, I am working on another book idea. It's in the very, uh, first stages. And I'm also working, I've been working on a book of poetry and I have some poems that are published online. You can check them out on my website and they are, I'm planning on them being in the next book as well. So stay tuned for that. Excellent. Well, uh, thanks for joining us on uh, Expanding Mind, Rachel. Thanks so much, Eric. Great. All right. So uh, until next week, to all you out there, keep your minds open.